Hello, I'm Sue Nelson, and this is the Planet Earth podcast from the equivalent of a bumblebee's campsite in Berkshire. You'll find out why in a moment. Also on the podcast, studying the effects of nanotechnology on the environment and human health. You might get exposed via inhalation, so the lung would be a target, via ingestion, so we have the gut as a route of exposure, via the skin. Once the nanoparticles are exposed to these different exposure sites, they can access the blood because of their small size. The sound of just a few of the several hundred bees here at an experimental farm in Sonning, not far from Reading. It belongs to the University of Reading and I'm with Simon Potts, who is Professor of Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services there and also the Deputy Director of the Centre for Food Security. Simon, I sort of mentioned it was like a sort of bee campsite. It's an unusual campsite in that um, you can effectively see through the canvas because it's like a a see-through gauze. What exactly are we looking at? Well, what we've got here is a set of experimental cages where we can actually manipulate the types of pollinators we have inside them and then we can actually expose different plants. They can be wildflowers or they can be crops and we can actually test what the impact of the different pollinators are on the pollination success. What types or other types of pollinators? Is it strictly bees? Well, there's lots of different insects that pollinate but probably bees are the most important, certainly in Europe. And what we have here, we have honeybees, which uh, most people will know about, but we also have managed bumblebees, which you sometimes also see in your garden. But we also have some solitary bees, and one particular sort is called mason bees, because they nest in small tubes. And we also have some hoverflies as well. You've got about 40 or so of these flight cages and let's just walk over to one of them and see it in a bit more detail here and and Duncan Coston is with us he's a research technician at the university Duncan your responsibility is to look after um, some of these flight cages well all of them could you explain the sort of crops that we've got I think I can vaguely recognize the flower of one of those possibly broad bean well here it's a field bean ah that's why it's so much taller than a broad it is yeah and they're grown quite often for things like cattle feed But here we're using them because we can use them as quite a nice indicator with our various different pollinator species. So we've got them in here in individual plant pots. So we can then move individual plants to expose them to our various pollinator species. And then we can keep them in another cage, keep them excluded from all pollinators. So we know the only thing that has pollinated that is the species we've exposed it to. How big are they? About four metres or so long? Each cage is constructed of blocks of roughly two metre cube cages, but we then can connect the blocks to make double or treble cages to to create multiple sizes and various sizes for cages that we want. For our solitary bees and our bumblebees, we keep them in double cages, so then we can keep the bumblebees in, they've got plenty of space, they've got forage space, and we can then put plants in to expose our treatments, and we can also put um, forage in to keep them going when we're not running our experiments. So let's just wander across here because you've got the field beans there, which is uh, so new for me because I've never actually <laughs> seen field beans. And then in the one next to it there, that's very recognisable, the yellow flower. Yep, on this, this cage and in a lot of our other cages, we're full of oilseed rape, which is another one of the main crops we're using for the crops project. Simon, last year you discovered that wild bumblebees play a much more important role in crop pollination than than was previously thought. I would say a very widely held belief that honeybees basically did most of the pollination of crops in the UK, and actually that was true back in the 70s and 80s. But since then we've had like really catastrophic declines in the number of hives, and it turns out that 
Now, currently, it's about only 10 or 15% of the work's actually done by honeybees. So the real heroes of our kind of crop pollination turn out to be these wild bees. And we have 267 species in the UK, including a number of bumblebees, solitary bees, and other small bees as well. So it's really important, if we want to kind of sustainably grow food and make sure we've got good pollination, we need to know who does the work. And if it's the wild bees doing the work, then we really need to think about how to manage the landscape to help them. So do we know who does most of the work when it comes to crop pollination? You, we're getting there. So we definitely. So know. we still don't know. Well, it, it's amazing. I mean, people have known about pollination for decades. But actually, that really fundamental question, who actually does the work, we don't know for all crops. And we're just starting to pick it apart. So quite often, it's a combination. It's really good to have a diversity of pollinators because that provides sort of insurance. So for instance, bumblebees are really good in cold weather and they can fly in those sort of temperatures. But when it's really hot, they don't like it so much. And maybe the more the kind of solitary bees come in and do the pollination. So as you've got kind of climate climate change and environmental change one of the big questions is how can we manage the landscape to make sure we have the right set of pollinators not just a single one but a whole set of them so we can always have good pollination so this is partly why you've got these very carefully controlled conditions in our little bee flight cage campsite here so you know what crops you've got as Duncan was saying you know what pollinators you've got Mm -hmm. and then you're looking at the mix to see which one works best Yeah, so the first question is, on their own, how well do they do? And the second question is, if we add them together, do we actually get a kind of greater benefit of having a different combination of pollinators? And actually what we do finally is then we cross-check this by actually going out into the fields, into real farms, actually looking at what's actually visiting flowers. Now, not every flower visitor is a pollinator. So there's some very crafty bumblebees out there, and they actually they go to the flowers, but if you watch very carefully, they go to the base and they pinch a hole, and in fact they're nectar robbers, and they do nothing for the field beans at all they just take the nectar away so we've got to know a lot about their individual behavior as well as kind of which species are out there now i noticed you had some strawberry plants around the corner and um are they apple trees over there yeah, so we've got potted apple trees as well. I mean, they're a very important crop in the UK. And some of the kind of apple growers have problems getting honeybees to go on the apples. I mean, if there's anything else around, the honeybees will almost always go to them. So if oilseed is flowering, it's a real job to get your honeybees in there. Well, we found actually these small mason bees are absolutely brilliant on apples. And actually, farmers could make a small change to the way they manage their orchards just to get these mason bees in by providing very small nest tubes. And they work really hard. In fact, some statistics suggest they may be several hundred times more efficient on an individual basis than honeybees. Are there any benefits to having crops pollinated via insects than sort of other techniques? Well, definitely. So one of the questions we're asked is, well, why should we worry about pollinators? Can we not just breed plants that just rely on, say, wind pollination? And actually, that's not really technically possible. So some plants definitely need that actual transfer of pollen by insects. And the quality and the quantity of actual fruit and seeds you get is much better with pollinators. So there are other ways of doing it. And we also looked at the economics of it. And we sort of said, well, if we lost all the pollinators in the UK and we had to, say, resort to, say, pollinating by hand. So you can imagine somebody with a paintbrush picking up pollen from a flower and taking it across. How much will that cost to pay people at a minimum wage? And it's £1.8 billion a year, which is crazy because the actual value given by bees and other pollinating insects is about half a billion. So economically, it doesn't make sense to try and replace what wild bees and managed bees can do. This field we're in, I mean, it's perfect for bees, really, isn't it? Because it's like a, a, a meadow. I mean, where we're standing, you can hear the sort of rustle of the tall 
grass here it, it, it's it is it's perfect meadow sort of conditions with wild flowers and daisies and buttercups and clovers yes and i mean it's it's quite good for us because we can then go out and we can collect forage for our bees from very close to where we're working and we have one bumblebee colony that we actually keep out, outside so in case we have any issues we can move it back inside so they can just forage on any any of the wild plants but the only problem we actually have with all these flowers around here is because we're all very interested in bees it keeps distracting us we keep wandering around and something interesting will fly past and there'll be an entire crew of people trying to figure out what this bee is or all just getting excited at what's just flying past. Yeah. Well, it, it is a, it's nice to be able to see them under safe conditions because, you know, we're always a bit wary of bees, or I am anyway, is thinking, well, I like looking at them but don't want to get too close in case, in case you get stung. But to, at least you can sort of, oh, you know, I can go up close here and look through and see them through the the gauze of the flight cage of of more field beans and just watch them hovering and buzzing around the the plants. It's it's just quite therapeutic, isn't it? Yes, it's very good. I mean, we've got the advantage that working with bumblebees and the solitary bee that Simon was saying about, the uh, red mason bee, they're very, very passive creatures. So you can actually quite happily go inside to these cages with the bumblebees and the, the solitary bees and get quite close to them and watch them pollinating the flowers in quite good detail. It's very interesting. The only one we oh, do have you've is... got a bee on your head. Oh, oh, oh now oh, it's I'll on your... <laughs> there we, there we go. go. What type of bee is that? That's got a yellow yellow stripe, two yellow stripes and it looks like a white bottom. This to me looks like it's a Bombus terrestris worker and it is possibly from our hive, that, our colony that we have outside. So they fly around quite often, as, as you can see here, this one's just quite happily just landed on my head and on my jumper, and it's absolutely no threat to me whatsoever. Gosh, I've not seen them so passive, actually, just standing there on your, on your sweatshirt. I think it's a kind of common misconception that bees are aggressive. Now, honeybees, if you were to go and kind of shake the hive or annoy them, then they, of, course, of course they're going to be defensive. But actually, bumblebees and solitary bees are fairly passive. They're much more into the business of going out and foraging and producing young. And, OK, if you do really kind of, like, press them and annoy them, they may sting you. But in general, they're very passive and very docile animals. What about the research that's come out recently? There were two papers that cited neonicotinoid insecticides and the, the extremely negative impact that they've had on wild bees. Well, I think these studies are really important because we're just starting to see now not just the direct lethal effects of pesticides, but there's also these sublethal effects where it maybe changes how reproductive they can be or it maybe changes in honeybees the way they kind of forage and their homing behaviour. I think it's just a, a really clear warning that we don't know enough and actually as we look more and more we are finding these negative impacts and we should think more carefully about the types of pesticides we use and how we use them. There have been calls in Europe by some scientists, particularly those who are involved in the study, to actually consider banning these, this type of insecticide. Do you agree? Well, I think on the precautionary principle, we may want to consider it, but the evidence isn't strong enough. So we know a little bit about some pesticides on some species, but there's a very wide range of pesticides and a very wide range of species. So we actually need to know the combinations that are really having a negative impact. And we also have to be realistic. So farmers have to grow food. Without pesticides, they're going to lose something like 30% of their yield. So given food security issues on one hand and environmental conflict on the other hand, we need to find a kind of common solution. And there are pesticides out there that aren't so bad for bees and there are ways of applying them that aren't so bad for bees. So we need to be smart. We need to grow food, but we also need to look after our pollinators. And there is a way forward. We just need to get that research done to be able to help farmers select the right pesticides. Simon Potts and Duncan Coston, thank you both very much indeed. Thank you. This is the Planet Earth podcast and you can see pictures of Simon and Duncan by our bee shantytown or campsite on our Facebook page. 
nanotechnology which involves particles up to one billionth of a metre promises to revolutionise the drugs industry and make smelly socks a thing of the past. Now you can already find nanomaterials in clothing, cosmetics and cleaning products but what are the environmental dangers of these tiny particles to health or the environment? Well, a joint research project between the UK and the United States has been set up to analyse the potential risk of nanomaterials. One of the studies is being led by Teresa Fernandez at Harriet Watt University in Edinburgh. Sir Richard Hollingham visited her lab and began by asking her to describe what a nanomaterial is. A nanomaterial is by convention a particulate matter that is really, really small. If you think about a metre, everybody knows and understands what a metre is like you have to go nine zeros below to get to the, the range we're talking about. Um, you've got a cupboard full of them. Yeah, Can we have a look? Do. Yes, sure. Let's have a look. There's a series of pots, almost like small paint pots, sort of you yeah. do a, a model kit, something like that with... Yes, we have here a few metals, for example, oxides. Uh, we have titanium dioxide, we have zinc oxide... Some of them are produced as powder, so a very, very fine powder. And, of course, you have to be very careful when handling them because they go in the air and you can breathe them in So because uh, being so fine. Uh, some of them are actually suspended in some kind of mediums, kind of dispersant. And where are they found in the real world when they're not in this cupboard? Because they're now all over the place. They are found everywhere, and you have natural nanomaterials. They've been around for many, many years. You have what is called incidental. They come out from combustion. And then, of course, we have what we call manufacture or engineering nanomaterials, which are used in many applications now. Some are fantastic applications for medical, for example, uh, new ways of detecting cancer or targeting cancer or, or other conditions. But others are things like uh, impregnation garments, like socks that everybody now knows about. So the ones in socks, these are silver particles mm that are supposed to deal with the smell, to make your yeah. socks less smelly? Yeah, the way they work, they're supposed to be antibacterial, antimicrobial. So, of course, if we prevent uh, microbes to, to grow in your uh, materials, whatever they are, in your socks, then uh, you prevent uh, the odour. Let's close the cupboard up. What are you working on in the lab here, then? We have here a range of projects looking at hazards. So we, we keep some organisms, very, very small organisms. We keep some primary producers, some algae, microalgae, single-cell organisms. And we keep uh, the water flea, for example, and some worms, some aquatic worms. Can we have a look at some, then? Sure. So past the, the lab bench and to... Well, these look like just large freezers, really, food yeah. freezers, fridge freezers. You could nearly walk in to these ones. So let's uh, have a look. Let's get down... Uh, a bit closer to here. So you've got these um, beakers. I don't know how big are these. Um, a couple of litres sort of beakers with slightly greenish water and these little water fleas skimming around. And then in there you've also put some nanoparticles, nanomaterials to see what happens. So if they indicate that there are reasons to be concerned, for example, there's mortality or there's reduced reproduction or, or other endpoints we might looking at, then there's a concern, and if these effects happen at low concentration, there's a concern that there might be you know, a reason to prevent or, or, I don't know, have controls in use of these chemicals. Now, Teresa, while you're looking at the environmental impact of these nanomaterials, I'm also with Helena Johnston, and you're looking at the 
impact on human health, yeah. please? So in order to do that, we can either look at the effects on cells cultured in vitro or we can look at the effects within animals in vivo. So when you say in vitro, you mean in the test tube? Yeah, so in a cultured condition, in a test tube. So what we generally do is we take cells isolated from different parts of the body. So you might get exposed via inhalation, so the lung would be a target, via ingestion, so we have the gut as a route of exposure, via the skin. Once the nanoparticles are exposed to these different exposure sites, they can access the blood because of their small size and then travel throughout the body, so the liver is a primary target. We also look at the kidneys, the cardiovascular system, the kind of list is endless. Teresa has chambers full of, of water fleas and the like. Mm-hmm. You have some human cells. Yep, so the cells need to be cultured um, at 37 degrees Celsius because that's what you would Our have. body temperature. Yep, exactly, body temperature. They need a supply of carbon dioxide and oxygen and they need a medium which re- gives them all the nutrients they need to grow in these sort of artificial conditions. So can we have a look at some? Of course. So, so we've got open the cabinet up. Cell types in here. So, for example, this is an epithelial cell. So it's found within the lining of the lung. So these. It just looks like a clear liquid, yeah, or a slightly so opaque. So opaque if you look liquid. at the back of the dish, you can see the cells oh, growing. Oh, okay. So all yes, these yeah. little kind of islands, if you like, are the cells. So they're the same in. cells that we'd have in our lungs. Yes. So these have been isolated, I think, from a, a tumor. So these cells will grow indefinitely in culture. If you take them from a human they'll only divide a certain number of times and it limits the amount of um, times you can use these cells. So You've got some darker ones in here as well. This will just be a different medium, I think. So these are macrophage cells. It's an immune cell within the body, so they're responsible for clearing foreign materials. Again, you can see them growing on the back of the dish, and whereas these epithelial cells will all grow together, these ones are isolated. They, they kind of are not attached to any other cells. And when you're looking at these, again, you're looking for the impact of nanomaterials on them. Yep, so the types of toxicity tests we do will administer the nanoparticles and see if the cells die, so they're having a cytotoxic effect. Do they elicit an inflammation, oxidative stress? So these are all common mechanisms that we know nanoparticles can act, and it allows us to compare the toxicity of different types of nanoparticles particles and see if they elicit a similar toxicity or some are more potent than others. And Teresa, doesn't this come to the the nub of this, that these things are already out there? Shouldn't maybe this work have been done 10 years ago when these kinds of products were being developed before nanoparticles were released? That's totally correct, um, but unfortunately it's not the first time the only industry where this has happened. Industry can develop very fast, and um, research and evidence needs to take its time because you don't want necessarily to prevent an area of industry, and if indeed there's no mechanism to do so, that is great promise for society. So it's a question of getting the pace right, you know, speed up the research, speed up the ability to translate results from research into the regulatory process. Teresa Fernandez and Eleanor Johnston from Heriot Watt University studying the effects of nanomaterials on the environment and human health. They were talking to Richard Hollingham. And before we go, you may be interested to hear about a couple of news stories on the Planet Earth online website. The first is about a study that has highlighted places that are food risk 
hotspots due to climate change. The team, including Dr Evan Fraser from the University of Leeds, used climate models to identify areas at risk from drought-induced famines. Now, countries are often most vulnerable in the early stages of development before the benefits from modernisation. And so while the very poorest and the richest societies may be OK, the study found that it was that vulnerable group in the middle that may fare worst – possibly because assistance from other nations or NGOs may dry up when a country or region is no longer classified among the poorest. And finally, for those of us who welcome the prospect of extraterrestrial life, slightly disappointing news that the small amounts of methane discovered in Mars's atmosphere might not be signs of life after all. After discovering that methane is released from living and dead vegetation when it's irradiated by ultraviolet radiation, an international team of scientists decided to expose extraterrestrial matter to UV light as well. The team showed that samples from a meteorite also released methane, and so the number of meteorites that bombard the red planet could have generated the methane detected in the Martian atmosphere. Fortunately, though, for those of us who do want E.T. to phone home, there's still hope, as meteorites may not be the only source. This has been the Planet Earth podcast for the Natural Environment Research Council. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page and Twitter feed. I'm Sue Nelson. Thanks for listening.